Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Techspansive. I'm Sean Dubervac from Avrio Institute. And I'm Ross Rubin at Reticle Research. We've got a lot of uh, smartphone news for you this week. While we won't get the official announcement until later this fall, the official release, that is, uh, Google has announced their next series of Pixel devices, the, the Pixel 6 and the Pixel 6 Pro. And uh, they, for the first time, are using a Google-designed processor that Google is calling uh, Google Tensor. You know, of course, Google has uh, struggled to make uh, many inroads in the smartphone market uh, in terms of absolute volume. Uh, This seems to be a way to kind of pin the blame, uh, in part anyway, on not being able to fully exploit their AI uh, capabilities, and in fairness to Google, they have long said that the reason that they're in the device game is kind of as a means to um, bring their AI innovations to to consumers uh, in a more efficient way. So uh, they are moving on from Qualcomm processors, um, you know, one of several companies to have done this uh, lately. I guess the big difference is that unlike, say, Apple, which moved to develop its own processors uh, years ago, uh, Google's smartphone volume is very small. So uh, the interesting juxtaposition there is that this isn't a case of a company reaching such critical mass where it feels that the time is right for an investment that's going to pay off not only in terms of um, better capabilities, but also lower prices because you no longer have to pay a a third-party vendor. Uh, Just a a way to, I think, kickstart what they have been trying to do here. Uh, The Pixel line, of course, has long been distinguished on its uh, imaging excellence. And uh, that's really the other part of the story behind this line, that they're going to bring these, um, these camera arrays to the back of the phones that essentially take up the whole width uh, of the back of the device uh, and create kind of a little hump (laughs) uh, on on the back of the device and uh, really following uh, a little bit what we saw from Xiaomi uh, earlier this year in terms of this uh, super-powered camera array, uh, which, of course, is not only fertile ground for AI, but uh, very important uh, feature for consumers in terms of a purchase motivator for smartphones. Yeah, it's clear that Google has, from really from the very beginning, been very committed to the um, to the camera feature and the video feature, and it looks like they were working to optimize Tensor to really uh, add some computational robustness to the, to the camera capabilities. And so there are some. Um, some add-ons that take place after the fact, after you've taken a picture and you can improve blurriness and, and other things, uh, essentially autonomously. So, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the, the one theme here is that you're seeing companies build their uh, processors that they want to be optimized for the services they're trying to provide. And, uh, you know, as we've talked about in the podcast in the past, you you had Apple move in this direction. You've got Google here moving in this direction, I think. It's definitely a push to see companies creating proprietary uh, processors for their hardware. 
And, uh, you know, of course, one thing Google has in its corner that uh, other companies do not is that uh, it owns Android, uh, or at least the the layer of Android that uh, most people around the world experience through, uh, you know, the Google, the Google services. And they have, um, they've tread, I would say, kind of carefully around this in the past, they've released a few exclusive apps that show off uh, some of their capabilities, like a a very nice local transcription uh, app that they have uh, kept to themselves. Uh, What might they do beyond the camera uh, on an app level or at an operating system level to really showcase the capabilities of uh, this new processor? That's really a big key in terms of what Apple has been able to do with its uh, in-house processors, both, well, really across the line. Uh, but but it really showed up, I think, uh, on the Mac uh, when they developed the M1 processor, because this was really moving off of a very mature uh, Intel line that the Mac had been with for about a decade. And all of a sudden, you know, they, they can do all of these, uh, they, they see all these incredible performance gains uh, and features that they just can't implement or won't implement uh, on Intel. So uh, that that's another uh, area of, uh, of opportunity for Google uh, to to improve the value of uh, of the Pixel phones and differentiate. You know, that's that's really been a key issue for them. Yeah. And I think what they're doing, like a lot of companies are trying to do now is double down on the AI capabilities of of the device. And and I think ar- arguably Google feels like they are ahead in that race. And so they're going to try to bring some of that expertise to the phone and, uh, you know, and make this the finally the phone that really starts to compete with the, the major brands out there. So do you think they'll be able to do it, Ross? You think that uh, we'll see Pixel gain any meaningful share? Uh, you know, or arguably it took the iPhone several iterations until it ultimately started to uh, garner broad attention. And some of that also was ending up on uh, other carriers' plans mm-hmm. away from the, the exclusivity deals it had early on. Getting broader global distribution also helped. Uh, the development of the App Store, without doubt, helped that as well. But um, it so it, it took a little while for Apple to, to really... Uh, get to where it is today, do you think that uh, Google has a chance to get well, there? Well, I mean, the difference is that um, Apple redefined the smartphone category, such as it was uh, back then with, with the iPhone. Uh, here we are in a very mature uh, smartphone market. And, uh, you know, Google, Google moving on from Qualcomm, uh, you know, that's a company that, certainly saw huge gains uh, in, in, in the rise of the smartphone and certainly is not tossing away the smartphone business, you know, is uh, still very keen on 5G and, and things like that, uh, but, uh, but is also looking to diversify its business for a post-smartphone world. A uh, story this week about how it's acquiring uh, an automotive uh, autonomous driving startup. Uh, you know, it's one of the many initiatives uh, moving post, uh, post-smartphone, post including 
smart glasses, which I uh, wrote about for Fast Company uh, recently, and uh, wearables, and um, um, and and of course, you know, PCs, uh, which <laughs> you know is an even more mature business than uh, than smartphones, but one where they they stand to uh, to pick up share. Uh, you know, I actually visited the the Google Store uh, that we mentioned on the uh, on the podcast a few weeks ago, right here in New York City. Uh, it is uh, it's an interesting layout. Uh, there are parts of it that are laid out um, uh, very much like kind of this home or you know an abstract version of a home. Uh, but uh, we had talked about uh, Google showcasing the ecosystem there. Uh, there was a lot of Nest products. Uh, Google refreshed its Nest lineup recently as well, and almost no third-party products. So uh, I thought that was, I mean, it, it is a relatively small store. Uh, there was a tiny, tiny shelf of, um, you know, like cases and, and a, you know, maybe a microphone or two uh, in, in the corner of the store. But yes, it's in Google's uh, New York City uh, building on on the front floor, and I thought it was uh, you know a decent showcase uh, for for the products, the phones, and the phone stuff tends to be kind of on the outskirts of of the store layout uh, with um, uh, with a lot of the home stuff working together uh, on you know kind of like more of a showcase part of the. Uh, of the store, so uh, an interesting contrast, uh, and more evidence, you know, that they're trying to do more to to bolster their uh, their their device business. Um, you know, they they ha- certainly have a challenge, as every Android vendor has had uh, in uh, in competing with Samsung. So. I, I think we're at an interesting uh, inflection point for a lot of these device categories. You mentioned laptops and, and computing. Uh, smartphones fits in there, where it's a pretty mature category. And the iteration from model to model with respect to feature set isn't changing that much. We, mm-hmm. you know, we added a second camera. First, we added a you know camera to the device. Then we added a second one to the front of the device. Then we added two image sensors to the back of the device. And then we continue to expand that. But I see those as incremental innovations that are driven by price points coming down. And what I see now happening is the manufacturers are trying to have a much more tightly integrated experience and deliver things in a, a richer way or, or add in a, uh, an experience that's, that is empowered by AI that really isn't being driven by the hardware per, per se. And so you see companies in both, you know, in Apple's case, in the compute environment here with Google and in the mobile phone environment, trying to create almost a more vertically integrated product so that they can try to enrich the experience that you're having on that device and, and really deliver a very seamless experience. So uh, it, it could be a a narrative that will play out in more places. I would argue that the Qualcomm acquisition of Veneer is the same thing. They recognize that those systems are all going to have to be very tightly integrated to uh, to perform, especially when you're talking about fully autonomous, you know, level five vehicles where there's no steering wheel, there's no driver. You're going to need to have a, a very tight integration between the AI 
chipsets and everything else the uh, you know the ADAS systems and everything else that uh, that veneer was working on so uh, it seems to make a lot of, of sense there it's interesting that they essentially outbid in that case a, a auto manufacturer who was looking to uh, to acquire it and and do some of their own vertical integrations so uh, I think we're gonna see more of that playing out in other phone news we saw that uh, Xiaomi is uh, doing quite well. It's topping the lists of other vendors. It is the uh, dominant mobile phone manufacturer now in Europe as of the second quarter there. It uh, sold 12.7 million units. That's 25% of the the market outpacing Samsung. Uh, That according to strategy analytics and, and globally, it is second only to Samsung. So You've got uh, a phenomenal growth. It's a device that we don't have in the U.S., at least not yet, but uh, it uh, has grown quite significantly overseas. Yeah, I, I think some of what you're seeing here is, uh, I mean, may, maybe less so in Europe, but you know, some of the challenges that Huawei uh, has had uh, with such an ascendant smartphone brand and without uh, you know the core Google services. It's very difficult for them to uh, compete uh, outside of uh, China uh, and uh, LG's withdrawal from the marketplace. So <clears throat> LG was uh, a stronger brand here in the U.S. than it was in Europe, but uh, but still had significant share. So so with those two companies' presence being uh, greatly mitigated, uh, there, there's an opportunity for other companies to to pick up share to our point about uh, Google just just a moment ago, they may be a little bit opportunistic uh, as well. Uh, but we've also seen, for example, OnePlus, another Chinese uh, firm, uh, pick up a lot of uh, share recently. Um, you know, was one of the fastest growing brands during the pandemic, and just had another strong uh, quarter of of growth. So. Uh, Xiaomi, uh, you know, they've been active in folding phones. Uh, they have been active in, uh, you know, as I mentioned, that those tremendous uh, <laughs> uh, clusters, uh, camera clusters on on the back of the phones. You know, they have also been uh, one of the strongest uh, partners of of Qualcomm. Uh, you know, one of the first, if not the first, uh, to implement a lot of their new processor. Features so uh, at least in that respect, it is a uh, it's it's a it's an endorsement or or an argument for to show that you can be successful uh, even if you're using uh, chipsets chips you haven't developed in house uh, at least for the time being. And Xiaomi was one of these companies that uh, did extremely well in the domestic Chinese market. It grew big by serving only the domestic market. I remember when it expanded to its first international market, going to Indonesia, which is also a very large market. It has about 20% of the of the market there. And so you saw it grow big by serving these, these markets that were looking for high-end smartphones at a lower price point. And then it I think it benefited from the maturity that came to smartphones where the the iteration again from feature set to feature set across the models wasn't accelerating like it was early on 
And so uh, it was able to come in at a, an attractive price point in some of these other markets as it continued to expand internationally. And, uh, and we see, you know, this week that it's done uh, extremely well in Europe and continues to grow. And as you noted, Sean, you know, they really have no presence here. Uh, and it's not just one phone. They have, uh, you know, not only a huge family of smartphones, but an entire ecosystem of uh, startups that they have incubated doing everything from hair dryers to washing machines to to vacuum cleaners, uh, just about, you know, TVs, just about anything you can imagine. Uh, and, uh, and so uh, I wonder if uh, they're keeping a low profile here in the U.S. has also helped them stay out of the sights of a lot of the uh, Chinese government crackdowns we have seen recently on uh, a lot of their uh, a lot of their most successful uh, homegrown tech companies like uh, like Alibaba and uh, you know we saw this week that uh, ByteDance is uh, having to let go of some workers that were active in the uh, in in the uh, in, in in China's uh, education prep uh, market, which uh, which has just been um, you know incredibly robust there uh, amid all the competition for spots in top academic uh, institutions, uh, new regulations that are having some game companies limit the hours that uh, students can play. So. You know, it's not a big jump to say, you know, if, if China's government can say video games are a scourge, you know, upon our youth, they should not be playing them, you know, for so long for them to also say smartphone addiction, you know, is, is a scourge. Uh, and so, you know, we're going to come up with some other limitation around that. So, uh, so you know they have been able to to avoid uh, the, those kinds of uh, those bumps in the road that that some of the the other Chinese tech companies have seen. They were on the banned list here in the U.S. until May. They were finally uh, lifted off the, the banned list because of their ties to Chinese military. So that that may be also some of the reasons why they've uh, not tried to enter the the U.S. market. Um, and and again, I think. There was a desire here in the U.S. market to buy uh, high-feature, high-price, large phones, and uh, and maybe Xiaomi felt like that, that wasn't quite the opportunity for them yet. Though I would argue, again, as the market matures, if there's small differentiations across the devices, then uh, Xiaomi could could probably enter the U.S. market and and uh, do well. You know, it could also be maybe they. Uh, didn't have the, the carrier relationships that they needed. Mm. We've seen that time and again, where mobile phone manufacturers aren't able to secure the carrier relationships they need, and they're not really able to successfully launch in the U.S. I would argue that's also changed somewhat here in, in the U.S. now, where you see more people buying uh, the devices and bringing it to their plan, or or you know the, the plans sell you the phone, but it isn't subsidized in the traditional way that it was. So... Uh, the times are yeah, it's it's loosened up a bit uh, for sure. But uh, but going back to the OnePlus example, I don't think we they would see the success that they have seen unless they had that strong partnership with T-Mobile uh, here in the U.S. Yeah, I would agree with that. Uh, in other news this week, we saw a lot of video announcements, and this is a narrative we've been talking a lot about on the podcast. 
that there is a, a lot of movement in audio and, and video space. Uh, we saw this week that uh, YouTube launched their $100 million shorts fund. The uh, YouTube shorts is a service essentially designed to compete with TikTok and to challenge TikTok's leadership. I see it working successfully even in my own home. My two older teenage sons are uh, strong TikTok users. My youngest son, who is a, a, a strong YouTube user, actually doesn't have TikTok. He just goes to, to uh, YouTube Shorts. So uh, already it looks like YouTube is starting to gain a little bit of uh, momentum, especially among their core audience, historically the audience that was watching uh, YouTube. Um, and so they were going to start paying out creators up to $10,000 a month based upon a, a number of factors, including how well their videos perform, what regions they perform well in, a lot of other um, probably undisclosed factors as well. And they'll be uh, sharing funds with uh, creators to help drive more creators to, uh, to their shorts. Um, and compete there with TikTok. At, at the same time, we saw this week that TikTok is testing its story-like feature. It's called TikTok Stories. And so you, you see them also trying to get into uh, some of the other areas that have been successful for companies like Instagram, where, this, where the Stories feature uh, has done very well. So it's very interesting to see uh, <clears throat> Google or YouTube breaking out the checkbook uh, in order to try to uh, acquire uh, creators. Uh, we've spoken a lot about some of the emerging competition to YouTube. Uh, Sean, you've mentioned Twitch uh, a number of times over the years. And a few weeks ago, uh, Mark Zuckerberg was touting the high percentage of engagement that Facebook is now seeing from uh, video on, on, their, uh, on, their, on, on the main service uh, as opposed to Instagram. Uh, where it's where it's long been uh, a presence, uh, and um, you know, but but this must seem like uh, a stronger threat uh, if Google is taking these measures to to try to convince creators to create TikTok like content uh, on on its service. Uh, it's also again a, to mention a theme that we've talked about a number of times. Uh, over the past, I would say, two to three months, uh, these companies increasingly jumping in each other's uh, space in terms of media. Another story this week about how Match Group, uh, which owns a whole portfolio of dating sites, uh, including, of course, Match.com, OkCupid, Plenty of Fish, uh, and, and a number of others, uh, is uh, looking to start audio and video chats uh, on, on its service, including potentially uh, group chats. Uh, and uh, I wonder if, you know, some of what they're trying to do here is capitalize on uh, some of the success of Bumble, uh, which, uh, you know, went public a, a little while ago. And in addition to being a, uh, a, 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 a romantic, you know, matching site, um, a dating site, uh, you know, also offers sites for uh, or, or, or the option to pursue platonic uh, friendships, um, you know, so trying to appeal to a broader group of, of consumers than, you know, just those 
uh, looking to date uh, at the moment. You could see how uh, offering this kind of functionality might might allow them to get deeper in the, in that space. Yeah, I thought that announcement from Match was extremely interesting, especially the group video uh, opportunity because it looks like they're clearly moving into broader social networking experiences that they have ambitions beyond dating. At the same time, you see companies like Facebook that uh, have extended their platform to include dating. And uh, so while some of these other social networks, traditional social networks have ambitions in dating, Match.com and its portfolio companies look like their ambitions are are much broader. And uh, I, I think it'll be really interesting to see if it can jump the, that chasm, if you will, to move from just dating to platonic relationships, you could easily envision that it becomes a, a, a networking site and could start to build out things like Lunch Club or could build mm-hmm. out other audio experiences. You, you have a demographic there. And the, you know, one of the problems is that that demographic ultimately eventually leaves the site, right? And so you're always going to have a younger audience, (laughs) but they're, but they're generally there for one thing. And so can you keep them on the site longer? And does that become attractive to advertisers or to their subscription offerings? Yeah, that's, that's a great point. And you just hit on subscription, which was uh, the other thing I was going to mention, how good a job uh, match.com has done in, in driving, uh, subscriptions for this kind of service, uh, something that really the main social networking sites have, have never really been able to do. Uh, and of course it's a challenge once you go beyond, you know, kind of an imperative like, like dating, uh, but maybe there are other premium kinds of, uh, services they could offer for people, uh, not looking, uh, to, uh, to connect romantically. So we saw that their Q2 revenue was up. They also reported earnings this week up uh, to $708 million, up from $555 million. Tender's direct revenue, so that's clearly the, the crown jewel of their portfolio, was $399 million, just under $400 million, up 26%, with 9.6 million payers, uh, up 17%. Mm. So they have had growth there. And and maybe some of this is a function of the pandemic, you know, ending, or, or at least we thought it was ending and people starting to go back to some of those social inter- interactions and other things like that. And, and also if, if Tinder is really the, uh, the revenue uh, model leader, perhaps I shouldn't use the adjective romantic. I, I don't think that describes Tinder very well. Yeah. But, it'll be uh, interesting. To I, see I think if, you guys got what I meant. Be interesting to see if in years to come, we are uh, using Tinder to, you know, network for our next job <laughs> or right. get a group right. of people together for an hiking or museum visit or something like that. Swipe right to apply to this job. Yes. Yeah. In other earnings news, we'll kind of close out with uh, a look at some of the other earnings news. We've had just a phenomenal two weeks of, of earnings season. Tech companies have done uh, extremely well, by and large. Um, well, their you know their their stocks might have gotten hit on uh, some of the risk factors that lie ahead. Uh, looking over the the last quarter, earnings were were very strong. Uh, we have, a, I think, a juxtaposition between uh, Sony and Nintendo. We have Sony that beat their estimates in Q1, operating profits of $2.6 billion. They uh, 
announced that the PS5 is no longer selling at a loss. And um, they had just a phenomenal gaming quarter, the highest revenue that they've ever had, $5.26 billion in the quarter that ended in June for the, the gaming category. And this during a time when PS5s by and large are, are out of stock and they've had pretty massive uh, supply constraints. Um, at, at the same time, the, the, the same narrative has not played out for Nintendo, which uh, struggled during the quarter. Yeah, it's, uh, it's surprising, uh, frankly, that uh, Sony was able to move so much volume. Uh, it really speaks to how uh, eager folks were for distraction uh, and home entertainment uh, during the pandemic. And in terms of the comps with the PS4, uh, it's important to remember that you know the PS4 was very supply constrained uh, at uh, at its debut, as uh, video game consoles often are. Although, again, not not to the extent uh, that uh, that we saw with the PS5, where the um, uh, the the uh, processing uh, shortages uh, were were something that uh, that affected the industry. Sony said that it was able to find a way around those shortages, but uh, it just shows that folks, you know, a lot of folks were able to get their hands uh, on a PS5 and uh, that the the constraints should be improving uh, over over the course of the year. Uh, in contrast, <clears throat> this uh, Nintendo story, I think, is, is very significant uh, because it's one of the earliest signs we have seen of uh, a company... Uh, not uh, meeting expectations uh, due to trying to live up to results experienced uh, during the pandemic. The Switch was perhaps the product that benefited most or certainly one of the products that saw the biggest lifts uh, during the, the pandemic. Uh, we, we spoke about it uh, at least once or twice uh, over the course of the last year. It was a personal experience. It delivered great content. Uh, it, uh, it traversed different age groups. Um, so it was, you know, tailor-made in many ways for, uh, for that, uh, that time. Uh, and uh, now that people are moving around again, you know, we're starting to see a bit more, well, first of all, you know, I think a, a kind of a saturation issue, uh, you know, in terms of the switch, but also uh, just competition with other forms of entertainment, you know, movie theaters are opening up again. Sporting events are are open to the public. Uh, so, uh, you know, so as for example, we look at PC companies uh, reporting good results. One of the questions I've raised is how long can that keep going before they run into uh, unfavorable comps uh, from the huge growth that they saw during the pandemic. And I think with Nintendo, that is definitely what happened. They had some blockbuster titles uh, in the in the quarter last year, and they didn't really necessarily have any uh, big blockbuster titles this year. Add in all of the factors that you mentioned, Ross, that people have uh, started to become more mobile over the last quarter, and the installed base is extremely large. Nintendo has sold over eighty nine million Switch consoles in total. Compare, you know, PS5 just hit 10 million consoles. So uh, while many more will come, they're only three quarters into that launch. 
there is an installed base hurdle that uh, Nintendo has to overcome. And without any real huge blockbuster titles, uh, they're, they're not seeing the, uh, the volume that they saw last year in the midst of the pandemic when we were, when we were looking at it. And you look at, you know, spending on durable goods now is up 25%, uh, you know, from pre-pandemic level. So while we cut back on services, we really doubled down on everything for our home, electronics, computers, game consoles. And so um, some of that story seems like it's still playing out. We saw earnings announcements this week also from Uber and Lyft. Uh, Uber had their their biggest quarter ever, and it was driven by delivery, uh, which I think is a little bit surprising given that, uh, you're, again, you're looking at year-over-year numbers, and we were already well into the pandemic at, at uh, this time last year, and so delivery was picking up at that point, and still delivery uh, gross bookings were up 85% this year over over last year. So people are still doing a lot of uh, a delivery of, of food and other things through Uber and through some of the, the ride the right hailing services. So, uh, while some things seem to be going away in the post pandemic environment, some things look like they might be here to stay at, at least in part. And, uh, we'll be watching that closely for the rest of the year. Probably a great place to end this week's episode of Techspansive. Thanks for joining us again. I am Sean Dubervac. You can find me on Twitter at Sean Dubervac. And I'm Ross Rubin. You can find me on Twitter at Ross Rubin. Thanks for listening.